it is good to be back and there is so much in store with this podcast i've done a bit of housekeeping a bit of reformulating with the podcast got a new camera camera quality is going to be a little bit better for the video portions um, i think previously it looked like i was using an early 2000s flip phone or like a sidekick my picture was pretty blurry so got a new camera feel pretty good about that and just generally have exciting things in the works starting with this interview today josh clemente there's some people that you come across in business in life i guess in podcasting that you just want to see succeed good people doing good things and that are actually making a positive impact on the world josh clemente is one of those people um, just all around good dude and their company the company that he's launched levels health is fascinating i don't want to get too much into the specifics because that's going to be for the episode uh, but josh as a brief overrun is a former spacex and hyperloop engineer so he worked with elon musk at two companies that are innovative is not even enough of a word to describe um, what they're doing but doing pretty exciting things but josh eventually had an itch to create something that he wanted to see in the world launched his own company i won't tell the story i'll let josh tell the story but beyond just hearing what josh is up to and what he's doing hearing how he solves problems and how he approaches anything in life whether that's creating something from scratch or solving a very difficult problem by breaking it down into simple components. Um, I think it's valuable for anyone, which is a huge part of the reason why I wanted to talk with Josh. I was fascinated the entire time, and I think you will be too. So, enjoy. But man, this is awesome. I appreciate you carving some time out. Definitely, man. Thanks for reaching out. Super excited. I think you guys, like there's several reasons why I wanted to talk to you and I think like you've got three components you have obviously like the founder business side which I think is really interesting we'll probably dig into you've got the health side being like that's the nature of your guys's company which we'll definitely dig into that but then there's the engineering side which is always been fascinating to me the more time that goes by the more I pay attention to people listen to people like you talk and Elon of course the more I realize there's such utility in thinking like an engineer and approaching problems the way engineers approach them. And I've heard you kind of talk about first principles and, you know, how you approach and problem solve. And I kind of want to dig into that. Can you lay some context and just describe how you approach problems and the first principles and how you've kind of gone about doing that? Yeah. Um, well, I think there's there's a, kind of the fundamentals of what engineering is. So engineering is kind of the science of building things it is, is an easy way to think about it. And science itself requires that you create a hypothesis and then you try as quickly as possible to invalidate it. So your goal is to constantly be testing, iterating your, on your assumptions and then improving your experiments. And so for engineering, it's um, you apply that science in a way that is different than other primary sciences like physics and uh, in chemistry, where you're you're trying to map the way the universe works. And this way, you're you're trying to get the most efficient solution to the problem you're trying to solve. So it's, I don't I don't really like calling it a pure science, but it is based on the on the fundamentals of, of the scientific method. Um, and so, what I think is the most important thing when trying to solve a problem is to to stay grounded in simplicity and elegance. And that is where first principles comes in. You, the, the first principles of a problem space are the immutable facts. It's you're trying to, for a car, you need to be able to transport, um, let's just say a human for, for that specific implementation of a car. You're trying to get from point A to point B. And everything else about that problem is extraneous. It's, it's separate from when you, when you start talking about you know, fuel injection and aerodynamics and um, you know, in, interior accoutrement, that, that's all separate from point A to point B. You know what I mean? And so when you're trying to develop the car, 
you need to stay grounded on the principles, the physical constraints that prevent you from transporting something from point A to point B. And those are gravity, those are wind resistance. Um, th those are like the challenges and that's where you orient your mind. And so, so I think that it sounds like a lot of fluff, but if you think about it as a tree, first principles are the trunk and the branches and leaves are the, the complex and tangential problems that can be solved, but are not necessary to, to have a tree, if that makes sense. Um, it, it's kind of like the thing that frustrates me about first principles and why I just talked uh, with someone else on, on one of their shows about this is that it's overused and underutilized. Um, people like to use the term, but oftentimes it's hard to, to tell actually whether am I, am I really focusing on first principles? And, and that's where simplicity and elegance comes in. It's like, if you can look at the list of requirements for the task or the problem that you're trying to solve, uh, all of the problems or, or projects that you're working on, if you can cr run a line through one of them and still have a solved problem, you solve everything else. And if that line doesn't have to happen in order for you to achieve success, it's not a first principle solution. Um, I, I think that's, that's one way to think about it. So um, ultimately, I, I'm the type of person who I kind of have this balance of really liking to solve problems and also being like kind of innately lazy. And that, that goes, it kind of like meshes well with this philosophy where if you can not solve the problem and still achieve success, great, do it that way. Um, that is more likely to be closer to the first principle solution. Is it an accurate assessment to say, because I've, I've almost heard it explained like instead of thinking in sort of abstract you just sort of look and say if we were going to pull this off how would we go about doing it yeah it's what what is the bare basic fact that has to be true for you to achieve success like um i think that's a it's a good way to to think about it is just if if we were to achieve success what things must be true, not, you know, what, what thing, not what things could be true. It's, it, it's what must be true. And you cannot achieve success without first principles being solved, solved for. You can achieve success solving for first principles, plus an, a huge number an unlimited number of other things. And so it's, it's trying to remove that excess, peel back the layers and find the, the core of the problem. And, and those are the first principles from which you, you work forward to solve the problem. So then I'm curious because <sighs> it's such a tangible strategy. Like if you pull this out into really any area of life, it's valuable. And there's like the nature nurture thing. It's like, are you able to think and operate off of first principles mindset? Because a lot of it's maybe because your brain works like that. And you know, you're an engineer by nature, but do you think that like, have you noticed in your career from studying engineering in school to applying it at SpaceX and all that, which we're going to get into that, learning and applying it like that, you're able to pull that, like it actually built a muscle in you to use that. Absolutely. It's, it's a learned skill for, for sure to you know, a, a lot of what we do in career and in, in our day-to-day -day lives is you brought up nature and nurture. I, I think it's the, the thinking brain, the problem solving brain is complex. You, and so much of it is emotional and influ influenced by factors that are outside of our control. So you can easily be distracted from the core considerations of a problem or of your financial strategy um, or of your relationship um, by factors that are outside of your control. And it is a process of repetition to reground the conversation or like your, your daily actions in the first principles of what you're trying to improve. And, and that is, that could be something as simple as a meditation practice where you, you have a mantra that is oriented around what you're trying to work on in your life, what you're focused on, and it brings you back to center. And so you might get off track and start fo focusing on the wrong things at some point during the day. Um, and just like, well, at the office, you can easily get into a tangential conversation that has nothing to do with the core problem. It could be a total waste of time for everyone involved. But as long as you can recenter and you have mechanisms built into your life to, to uh, yeah, reorient your process and those people involved to, to get back on square one, that's okay. Um, it's part of the, the human condition. And, and certainly when you're surrounded by people who, you know, first principles thinking is their goal, they, they try to learn from each other. So constantly trying to pick up new information on how you can refactor your mental models to do better at staying focused on the, on the core task at hand. And it can get to the point, you know, certainly where you're stripping away 
all the nuance, all the beauty, all the, you know, it, it can, it can get pathological for some people where they, they're just so obsessive about, you know, first principles thinking that they, they lose some humanity, I think along the way. So there's definitely a balance as with anything, but in my life, this has been a learned skill. I, I did not, you know, I certainly did not have this innately and I learned from people who are better at it than me. That's fascinating to hear because I'm like always obsessed or, or interested in like, I would use the word tangible a lot, but like tangible strategy. Cause like we always talk about these things that we can do to make, improve our lives or accomplish the things we want to, but hearing something like that being a learned skill, because it is so like, it's a, it's a mechanical process, almost something you can yeah. take. I'm kind of curious about your background. I, I know a bit about your background, did a little research obviously on you, but could you paint a little picture of, of where you came from and what led to you building or starting levels? Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in Virginia. My dad's an FBI agent. My mom was my teacher. So I was homeschooled through K through 12. Um, and I was kind of an outdoorsy, energetic, probably ADHD kid and, and really enjoyed building things, um, especially vehicles. So I, I like to um, hack together four wheelers and go-karts and dirt bikes and stuff. And I, you know, my dad's a pretty mechanically minded person. I think that my mechanical obsession kind of trickled down from him, obviously. But I, I just ended up getting to the point where I didn't enjoy school. Uh, I, I was decent, but I was not a great student. And I had to figure out what I was going to do with my life. You know, it was, it was time to apply to college. And I, I essentially made the decision to apply for mechanical engineering because it was the only career path that I was aware of that would allow me to keep doing what I enjoyed, which was building machines. Um, I, I, I would, you know, I had learned to, to weld at I think age 11 or 12 and, you know, I could, I could make something it, it might not look great, but I it could certainly do the trick and it would move fast. And, and this was mostly again, cars and, and motorcycles and dirt bikes and such. Uh, and so that, that's, that was my thought process is I never considered, you know, finance. I never considered law. I never considered medicine. It was just I, I have this selfish interest in building machines and, and enjoying them. And the, there's only one way to do it in my career, it, it seems, and that's through a mechanical engineering degree. Um, I was always obsessed with airplanes and, and you know, the supercars and all of the, like, the, the, the upper crust of vehicles, for sure. Um, but I, I hadn't thought far enough ahead to really be, I, I was not the type of person that had intensively planned my life out. I'll, I'll put it that way. Uh, mostly because I didn't think I was a good enough student to, to be able to, to really like project into the future and make it happen. It, it just seemed like I was kind of, to some extent, uncertain about what I would do in the future. But I knew that I wanted to, to do something with my hands and, and work on, on machines. And uh, ultimately, I, I did quite well in mechanical engineering, mostly because there is, uh, you know, an element of it that is building projects. And so my senior design project won best overall uh, engineering project at my school. And it became my pitch to companies when I was applying uh, for my first jobs. And at that time, like between during school, I, I had become completely obsessed with Tesla Motors. Uh, I had known about it since the founding. What year was or, this at this point? So I graduated college in 2010. And uh, I went to school in, in 2006. At this point, Tesla was was young, like when I first went to, to college, you know, they had the Roadster they were a long shot from, from ever producing what they claimed they would produce. But I loved the Roadster. It was such a, such a cool concept that you would have essentially like the Lotus Elise supercar powered by laptop batteries. It was just, it was amazing that they had been able to, to produce this. And it was, it went against the mainstream philosophy at the time, which was that electric vehicles were useless and slow and ugly. And, um, and so I was just obsessed with it. Um, and when I read about <clears throat> the the larger scale Tesla vision, it was something I wanted to work on. It was something that seemed underdog. And I really, I was very obsessed with Tesla. That's where I wanted to work. I thought I could pull it off. And I had not thought about um, spacecraft and, and rockets and such, just because everyone I knew that was going down that career path was a much better student than I was. And I had not connected the dots of like fabrication, you know, rockets and spacecraft have to be built as well to my skill set. You know, I kind of assumed that I would have to be the MIT, you know, space camp guy 
in order to, to get into a JPL or a NASA Ames or any of those other centers. And that's where it gets kind of interesting is that I did get an internship at Tesla, but it fell through because they moved their, their offices. And it was just kind of this weird timing situation. And the recruiter recommended that I instead turn my attention to SpaceX because they need people like you. And that was really the first time I had heard that. Um, again, like I said, I'm not one of the best students. And, and this was, this was like a, kind of a surprise to me. And I knew that Elon ran SpaceX. I knew that they, I knew what they were up to, but I just didn't consider myself relevant. And so I, yeah, I, I turned all my attention to that. I was actually selling used cars after I graduated college at CarMax and really putting all of my effort into getting connections to people at SpaceX to, to drop my name. Ultimately, I got the call. I got hired as a manufacturing engineer at SpaceX and I, I spent six years there. And um, along the way, got an opportunity to lead a high pressure life support system there for the astronaut program. And that was like the pinnacle of my career at SpaceX. And during the time there, I, I personally began, began experimenting with biometrics, biomonitoring, specifically blood glucose for myself uh, to try to optimize the way I was feeling every day. And that is kind of how Levels was born is through my own realization that what I thought, I, what I thought of my health and the reality of my health were two completely different things. And the difference was that I wasn't tracking any data. You hear this a lot with founders and one of the last people I interviewed, Ben Jenkins, he, same type of thing. He was sort of scratching his own itch. He was looking for a home, he had like a minor thing he wanted to repair in his home. And he was like scrolling through pages of Google and it took him forever. Everybody wanted to come out to see the little project and give him a quote for like a $200 project. He's like, this is dumb. I need to I can create a better platform. So anyways, he ended up creating a, a, a on-demand home services platform, had a pretty good exit. And um, it, it, he attributes part of why he did so well to just like scratching his own itch, you know, it was like something he wanted yeah. to see in the world. And I know that that was a similar situation for you. Could you kind of talk about what you were feeling and what physically, like your physical state while you were at SpaceX? Obviously you were in really good shape from the outside eye as well, right? Yeah, so, I, you know, I played sports growing up and... I really wanted something to be an outlet for it. I also lifted weights a lot and was, was interested in that, but I wanted an outlet that kind of combined the, the sports component and the weightlifting component uh, and kept me interested the way, the way sports had well, while a professional, you know, and that was CrossFit. So I got really interested in, in CrossFit modalities, became a CrossFit trainer. You know, this is sort of parallel to my time at SpaceX. And, and so I was like, I was fit, you know, I've been fit most of my life. I've never had a, a problem with weight gain, but I've also been a calories in calories out absolutist in the sense that it does not matter the source of the calories. It's all the same broccoli and Skittles. It's, it's just a calorie count. And I had a, a really insane sweet tooth. Um, in college, I would eat M&Ms for dinner and that's, that's like no, no exaggeration. I would, I would easily crush a, <laughs> crush a pound or two of those. And so I had gotten to the point where, you know, I'm, I'm in good shape. I'm, I'm working at SpaceX, which is an extremely high paced environment. Everyone's basically trying to outcompete each other to work the most and to always be present and always be the ones like carrying the most load on their backs. And you get a little bit of a, of a um, it's a rapid road to burnout to be honest with you. And I was experiencing it. So as I was approaching this, like the most important project of my life, leading this astronaut life support program um, or life support team inside of the life support program, I, I just suddenly became aware of the fact that everything felt different from how I thought it should be. Like my mood was always poor. My energy levels were tanking consistently. Um, every single day I would feel the need to just sit down, close my eyes, go to sleep or lay under my, under my desk and like try to hide. And it was, it was a very shocking transition and, and I, it, it happened slowly, but I suddenly realized it. like something's very different about my day to day. Um, I was having these episodes that were a little bit hard to describe, but certainly symptomatic. I would get, you know, itchy skin. I would get shaky. I'd get a cold sweat, like very strange sensations. And so I went to my doctor and I just, I asked him to do a full workup, like figure out what's wrong with me because it, it seems like I have a terminal illness. Like every, something's changed and I, I feel very unhealthy. And, you know, he, get, he looked at me and he was like, you're fit, you're fine. If you could see some of the people that came in to my office, you'd, you'd calm down a little bit. Uh, we did a whole blood panel, nothing really was flagged. And 
I left the office with the generic feedback, like, you know, eat some more fish, try to eat healthy in general, work out more, you're fine. Um, I was not satisfied with that. So as I'm working on this astronaut program and learning more about the way that astronauts prepare for orbital missions, they're constantly tracking all biomarkers that, that you can easily measure in, in the modern human. It's typically through blood panels. So they're doing blood panels on a, a, you know, basically like a weekly basis, depending on who they are and tracking all the, the metrics that um, are associated with long-term risk factors. A lot of exercise, a lot of good eating, but a lot of data. And I was very frustrated by, by this like approach that I took in my life, which is every year or every two years, I get a single PDF printout with some numbers on it. And I get the same generic advice versus people who are at, you know, on this elite spectrum who can't get sick because they're about to go to space where you don't have emergency rooms. Um, they're measuring data continuously and they're taking action off of it. And this felt very strange to me how, how different this was, despite the fact that the technology existed. So I started to look around like, all right, I'm having these burnout issues. I feel terrible. Read about the metabolic uh, systems in the body and, you know, was pretty familiar with the basics. And I just realized, hey, you know what, there's actually an easy way for me to measure something about my metabolism and see if these energy issues and these symptomatic episodes are related to it. And that's measuring blood sugar. Um, so I, I got a finger prick blood sugar device from Amazon or something and started obsessively uh, pricking my fingers and like plotting my numbers in Excel. And, you know, it was basically useless. I, I would have a cloud of data in the morning, a cloud of data in the evening and, and in between I'm working or I'm on, on the run and just didn't have any information. To make a long story short, I read about, a, I continued to get more interested in this metabolic health stuff and was reading primary literature. And I, I came across eventually continuous glucose monitors, which are, you know, these are devices that were developed for the management of diabetes, where you have to, you know, sort of intensively manage your glucose levels. And I was like, oh, I, I need one of those. This is what I'm basically replicating. I'm pricking my finger 40, 50 times a day, plotting the results. If I can just wear a sensor that does this for me, great. Asked my doctor and he flat out denied me. No, absolutely not. It's crazy for you to ask for that. You do not need to measure blood sugar unless you are diabetic. And those were basically verbatim. Um, and, and so this was like kind of the, th the third insult um, in this whole like cascade of events where I left that office and I, and I just thought that's my blood sugar data. This is happening in my body one way or another. doesn't ma matter if it's good or bad. It's, it's my body's data. And, and why am I asking for access to it instead of providing access to other people? Um, it may, it may be the case that my blood sugar is perfect, but I don't know that. And I have no way of confirmation and there's nothing inherently negative about me having more information about my body. So I stayed focused, eventually got a CGM and within about two weeks of data, and this is coincidental, I, I realized that everything is wrong about my blood sugar. It's constant. I'm, I'm basically every meal I'm eating is putting me well outside the normal range. This is according to the American Diabetes Association. So I'm exceeding 140, oftentimes 180 milligrams per deciliter after every single meal, spending long periods of time elevated. And then I'm experiencing these crashes where because I, I am not diabetic, I, I still release insulin. Um, my body overcompensates to these large elevations and my blood sugar plummets. And it's, it's actually during that drop that I would experience those, those sort of fatigue waves where I would, I would How feel low would it go? Uh, it, would it would, it would drop into the sixties and then it would resurface. And it's, it's really the ride down. It's not, it's while you're at 60, you can feel it. And for anyone that's ever bonked, um, you know, on a long endurance run or a, on a ride, it's that pit in your stomach, that shakiness, the cold sweat. Uh, those are the exact sensations that I didn't know were a blood sugar thing earlier, but I now can, can actually predict my glucose based off of my, the sensations in my body today, because I've connected the data to my sensation in real time this way. So that was a learning experience for me. And being able to see these huge elevations, knowing the data, having read many, many papers on the stuff at this point, um, it was obvious to me. And so I, I then spent uh, several months just using CGM data to, to fix the diet that was driving this. Um, so I would remove the, the meals or, or, you know, reorganize portion sizes and macronutrient makeup to try to get rid of those huge spikes. And it was very effective. And then I also started learning things about the different exercise modalities quality and duration of sleep, how all of this stacked up and affected my blood sugar in ways that you can read in a textbook, but it's never going to come up 
you know, on a Google search and you're never going to hear it in a fad diet book. Generally, you're never going to read about it being relevant for anyone without diabetes in the first place. So it was, a you know, it was basically a nutrition and physiology uh, PhD over the course of a few months. Your story is interesting to me because a lot of times you'll hear some implementation, whether it's like a certain diet, keto diet, vegan diet, whatever, and someone will lose a ton of weight on that with that strategy. And then their health markers improve and they'll point to that strategy and say, look, it was the keto diet when it's you look and it's like, well, dude, you lost like 80 pounds. Um, but you, maybe I'm mistaken on this, but you've always been like, you're pretty jacked dude in good shape. And you've been, you didn't go through like a tremendous weight loss deal. Did you? No, I, so I did lose, I, I started to experiment with a lot of different, um, tools, lifestyle tools after my introduction to CGM, uh, those included caring a lot more about sleep, different exercise modalities, including zone two cardio training, which I had never really done before. I'd only done high intensity stuff and fasting. And so I, I did lose weight. Um, unfortunately it was a combination of fat. I, I've never, like I said, I've never had probably over 11 or 12% body fat. It's just genetically, I, I just am not predisposed. I'm predisposed to have a tough time gaining. Um, so I, during the time of experimenting, I, I lost a couple pounds of muscle, you know, and some body fat as well, but just trying things like ketogenic diets, trying things like intermittent fasting, just le learning about these tools and how they affect, uh, you know, both my quality of life and also quantitatively my blood sugar and the sensations associated around that. So it was a very experimental process. And yeah, you know, to your point, it, for me, it was when I look back on, you know, three years ago, I've now been wearing CGM basically continuously for three years. When I look back on, on where I was then and where I am now, the vast majority of the changes are cognitive. So my ability to maintain, I think, perspective, my, my mood control, and my clarity, my, my clarity of thought, these are the things that I feel have changed the most for me. And when I, you know, there's a secondary effect of like continuous energy. And, and this one is a little bit harder to describe because I don't have those episodes of like shakiness and, and like just general symptomatic hypo, which, which typically are related to meals anymore. And so I say I have more consistent energy. I still struggle with, you know, all of the things everyone struggles with getting up early, going to bed on time, but I have fairly consistent energy levels throughout the day. But again, the things that I point to as the, the most transformational for my life are um, mood perspective, cognitive clarity. And it's really interesting because uh, Alzheimer's and, and late stage dementia run in my family. And when, when looking at metabolic health and its long-term effects when, when dysfunctional, there is a very strong tie to, to the mental health and mental outcomes for, for a certain subset of the population. And we've always looked at weight. We've always sort of said like metabolic dysfunctions um, those are, those are things that overweight people deal with. And we, we do not look under the hood and consider the links to depression, the links to anxiety, the links to mental health, and especially the links to dementia, you know, Alzheimer's today in medical schools is being taught as potentially type three diabetes. Um, the, the relationship there is because the brain becomes insulin resistant during the transition into Alzheimer's dementia. And that is, that's well known and accepted. The question is whether it's causal or a symptom of the Alzheimer's. But the point is that the brain exhibits the same insulin resistance that the muscle tissue and, and, you know, general tissues of a diabetic, you know, a person who's experiencing diabetes, uh, th those are the same, you know, or similar transformations. So uh, those relationships are very closely established. And I think that's the most interesting thing for, for me personally, is that although this isn't something that changed my body composition transformationally, I believe that it has changed my, certainly my, my mental experience, like my, my quality of life as it relates to my mental health and potentially long-term outcomes for me remains to be seen, but uh, I certainly feel better about it. That's why this is so interesting to me, because if, if you had to make like a short list, a list of five things that people could focus on to optimize, like even you're talking about the cognitive side or just how you feel. And then your long, your longevity and your health, man, I would put blood glucose control right up on that list. And it's funny how you, like you started to optimize your sleep because you noticed the effect that it had on your blood sugar. And 
that's, I kind of want to get into levels specifically because you're the, the perfect use case or, or example in really good shape. Anyone would look at you and say, like your doctor looked at you and said, dude, you don't have diabetes. I'm not going to get you a CGM. Nobody would look at you and say, you're someone who probably has crazy blood glucose swings. Um, but yet once you actually took a look under the hood, you saw issues. And so can you describe what levels is and, and you know, how people are using it? Yeah. So levels is basically what I wish I had when I started this whole journey myself. Um, and, and specifically it's the first tool that can answer the question, what should I eat and why with real-time data from your own body? Uh, right now, that data consists primarily of continuous glucose information. So when you, when you try levels, you get a, a, a pack of CGM sensors. These are continuous glucose monitoring sensors. You wear one of these patches on the back of your arm continuously for two weeks, and it wirelessly communicates with the level software. And inside the level software, you log your behaviors. These, are, these kind of cover the four main levers of lifestyle actions, which are your nutrition choices, your exercise, your sleep, and your stress. And so all of that lifestyle logging is in the context of your continuous blood sugar information. So an example is you sit down for lunch, what are you gonna eat and why? Today, a lot of people are doing, uh, are, are selecting meals based off taste, emotion, something that they read about on the internet, something that was recommended from a friend. Uh, it's never, and I can say that pretty confidently based on an objective data source from their own body or their own health record. And this is where Levels comes in is that you can sit down, you can eat that lunch. And two hours later, you're going to get a score that is based upon how your body processed it metabolically. So the blood sugar response you experienced, the, the height of the elevation, the time that you were out of range, the variability. So the instability that happened afterwards, all of these things are like kind of nuanced factors that, that affect your both long-term risk and also your quality of life. Probably you'll feel some of the symptoms associated. Uh, we combine all of those into a single score. And so now you have a score for that meal and we can surface insights to help you make some adjustments. So we can make recommendations around macronutrient content. You know, maybe you ate oatmeal on its own. Well, oatmeal is actually a processed carbohydrate and it tends to break down very quickly. And for many people in the levels data set, it affects them pretty negatively. Uh, so that doesn't mean you have to give up oatmeal, but we can make some recommendations, you know, trying something like adding fiber in the form of chia seeds or adding some healthy fats and proteins uh, like almond butter. This can have a very significant effect for individuals that most don't recognize. They, they think this is all or nothing, but by introducing the nuance of uh, there's balance associated with the, the portions, there's balance associated with the order of foods. So having a salad before carbohydrates can actually affect the, the way that the carbohydrates break down. And then the, the sort of summary of our choices, we can also introduce you to the fact that if you take a walk right after an indulgent meal, you can modify that response dramatically um, because your, your posterior chain, the, the largest muscles in your body are moving, working in real time. They're pulling the glucose right out of your bloodstream and using it for energy in the moment, as opposed to, you know, you sitting on the couch after that meal and it getting sort of converted into fat while simultaneously causing a, a sustained elevation in your blood sugar. So all of these like nuanced decisions are kind of abstract when you read about them. But when you see your body do a thing after you make a choice, and then you modify your choice and see your body do something completely different, that's a lesson that is very hard to forget. It's, it sort of immediately turns to habit. Um, and so that's, that's the level system is, is just connecting in closed feedback loops as short as possible, the actions we take to the reactions our bodies experience using blood sugar. And levels is the software platform that links with the CGM, right? The app on right. levels phone. is the exactly levels is the software component. The, the, you know, we have a program where you, you can sign up and get access to CGM through a partner telehealth physician network. Um, that's, that's something that we offer as a service, but Primarily, Levels is a, is a data science company. We're a behavior change company. Our goal is to connect people with the way, you know, the lifestyle choices they can make that can lead towards metabolic awareness, which is understanding how your actions affect your metabolism, and then ultimately metabolic fitness, which we, you know, we are using this term to, to encompass the fact that metabolism is not binary. You're not either healthy or unhealthy metabolically. We're all on the spectrum. And we can improve our metabolism, our metabolic fitness through focus, effort, repetition, correct decision-making, but you need to measure if you want to, to improve, right? So 
that that's the, the ultimate concept is just by surfacing this information, you can learn from it. And then by improving it iteratively through small micro optimizations over time, you can get better. I like that you guys are, you're putting everyone on the stand because, you know, like you mentioned, the calories in calories out was kind of your old mentality. And it's like, yeah, these, this is a real, like thermodynamics are real energy balance is a real thing in terms of weight loss and weight gain, but there's a lot more that's happening under the hood. Um, and people that are maintaining a healthy body weight and maybe even in, in a net calorie deficit can still be metabolically all over the place. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it's not, it's not to say that this is one of the tricky parts of the conversation today is that it seems like we're pitting the hormonal theory group against the calories theory group. And these, both of these things are true. Calories are a unit of energy. It's not, it's an imperfect science. It's that we, we aren't a bomb incinerator. We can't turn that food into a, a perfect unit of energy. That's going to depend on our digestive efficiency and a whole bunch of other things. Um, but it is a unit of energy and certainly it thermodynamically, it is true that if you intake more energy than you expend, you will gain weight. That said, the way that our bodies process the foods that we eat is different and unique. And a, a you know, a, a pound of, of lean ground beef and a pound of pasta have two completely different impacts on the hormonal implications for our bodies. So, um, you know, fats have nearly zero insulin effect in the body carbohydrates have a very significant insulin effect, insulin effect, and certain proteins, especially processed proteins like whey, whey protein powder also have insulin effects. And insulin is, a, it's like a master hormone in, in our metabolism. It, it drives downstream processes from, from fat storage to fat oxidation. So basically it, it both, you know, drives fat, fat storage, it drives glycogen replenishment, but it also blocks fat oxidation. So when your insulin levels are high, you're going to be locked in your body with, a, with no ability to tap into your adipose tissue. And so some people who are experiencing high insulin levels continuously, uh, they may be in a caloric deficit, but if their insulin levels are high, they cannot burn fat. And that's something that is, is really confusing and is where I want to shine the light is that it is not always the case that just, you know, short duration calorie deficits will allow someone to, to start to shed their weight as easily as someone else. It's, it really is under the hood hormonal implications. And that's driven by what they're eating in between meals, or I'm sorry, what they're eating at meal intervals. And there's, I know there's some research to, to point to people have different glucose responses to different foods. Um, I, I've, I know you've mentioned the, the banana and cookie, I think was the example, but in your guys's data set that you guys have collected or looked at, have you found that to be similar as well? Yeah. I mean, to, to give some anecdotal, actually I'll, I'll quickly give that banana cookie example. Uh, one of the landmark trials was this Weizmann Institute study in 2015. They, so they took 800 people with, uh, without diabetes and they gave them continuous glucose monitors. And then they had them eat these um, standardized meals, a whole, a whole variety of them. And they were able to show that two people can eat the exact same two foods at different times and have equal and opposite blood sugar responses. So in this case, it was a banana and it was a cookie made with, with wheat flour. Um, we don't have enough data from that study to know all of the other downstream implications. Like, did they have opposite insulin responses? Um, you know, th those are the big questions that remain to be answered that, that we at Levels are looking to study uh, with our research program is to continue to fill in the blanks and push that science forward. Anecdotally, we, uh, we've replicated this many, many times, and, uh, eventually we're going to be able to publish a, a lot more. We want to make sure that we have statistical significance, but you know, an example would be a few weeks ago, uh, the whole levels team did a quick challenge where we, we both, where everyone drank two Coca-Colas full sugar, um, at separate times on day one, we drank the Coke and sat on the couch, did absolutely nothing, tried not to expend any energy on day two, drank the Coke and went for a walk 30 or 40 minutes of just casual strolling. And the goal was to show how different, you know, those two events are for our bodies, how, how the walk can modify the area under the curve, basically of your blood sugar elevation. And, and the results are amazing. It's just completely different. Um, totally awesome. But what we also showed is the difference between in that sedentary mode Drinking a Coca-Cola across our team was so different. And one of the interesting ones is one of the, one of the engineers on our team, <clears throat> he's built about like me, maybe 
maybe slightly less muscle mass actually, but, um, lean doesn't really gain weight about my height and our difference in terms of our postprandial response that to that Coke was mine was twice as twice as great in elevation as his. So from the departure from baseline, I increased by 80 points. He increased by 40 points. Um, that is the example right there. So that postprandial glucose elevation is very different and it has very different implications. Um, this is well-established, like the degree to which your blood sugar, uh, excur your blood sugar excursion increases is directly correlated with long-term outcomes, risk of chronic illness, heart disease, including diabetes, um, and, and now increasingly dementia. You would not look at us and assume that we would have different responses. It's not like this is someone who had, you know, was hyperinsulinemic, had a, a lot of weight on their body, um, different genders. Like this is pretty similar, well-controlled, both fit, neither of us are smokers. Um, and yet we're having dramatically different responses to the exact same standardized input. And so there's a lot more research that needs to be done on the factors there, but the effect is present and we see it constantly. And it's just, it's always surprising to me, the, the in-group differences. So like, look at the same sort of demographic profile, you're still gonna find differences. And there have been studies on like the PREDICT trials in the UK, which have shown the same effect among identical twins. So two people who share hundred percent of their DNA can have vastly different blood sugar responses to the same inputs. So, it, you know, it's a, it's still a mystery exactly what's happening. I think it's context. It's the hormones in our bodies. It's um, you know, it's microbiome, so on and so forth, but we need to tease these out and help people make the choices that will, that will optimize for them. That's so interesting that you and your, your engineer, I think, and what you're saying potentially is that, if you guys redid this trial with a different food, maybe equivalent carbohydrates, um, there's a chance that you may handle it better than him, like the complete reverse scenario, which I think is interesting. For sure. You know, that's the one, that's one that, that would be beautiful to be able to display. Like, I don't think we've seen that in the literature yet that, that the, they will switch. Um, well, I'm, not, I'm, I'm sorry. The Weitzman trial did show that. I don't think we at levels have replicated that degree of, variability where you can like, we eat the banana and the cookie and have equal and opposite for, for those two foods. Um, we, we do need to do more digging there. But I think the, the most interesting thing is that what we all need to be optimizing for is ourselves. So it's really fascinating, you know, anecdotally to know that I have a much worse response than, than the other person on my team. But it's actually most interesting for me to know how I respond to different foods and select for those that that optimize my blood sugar control. And those may be, you know, directly opposite of someone else, or they may have overlap. You know, there's, there are probably a great deal of foods like green vegetables, for example, like nobody's really having a dramatic response to the carbohydrates and green vegetables, unless you have an allergy. So there's a lot of overlap. And then there are these outliers where there seems to be individual variability. And it, I mean, some of it may be ancestral, you know, if we, for example, look in regions of the world where a certain food was eaten, I would not be surprised if we find that there are microbiomic trends or just genetic predispositions to be able to produce the enzymes to break down that specific strain of fruit or, or grain sugar. Um, we're not deep enough in the science yet to be able to answer those questions, but I do expect that we will. I like how you're talking about, ultimately, we just need to optimize ourselves, And I hope that everyone at some point wears a CGM, um, but like some blanket statements, like we talked about, you know, quick walks, even 10 minutes after eating, being a huge one. Can you kind of go through some things that you found for most people work really well? Yeah, I think by far the, the biggest two are balanced meals. So making sure that you have essentially equal proportion, protein, fat, and carbohydrate in a meal and the, uh, and, and then the exercise and, you know, for the exercise thing, it's, it's just more movement more often, as opposed to, you know, having to do high intensity training for 90 minutes a day. It's, it's like just walking after every meal is going to have probably a higher gain effect for someone who's trying to lose weight or is trying to produce metabolic control, um, for health reasons than that high intensity session. There's a whole bunch of implications for high intensity workouts that are great for you, but they also in, induce stress. And if you do them at certain times of day, 
they can interfere with sleep. And so the sleep interference can, can ultimately trickle down into the next day having poor recovery, actually causing elevated cortisol, which causes elevated insulin. Like there are all these trickle down effects where when people try to fit in the big chunks of, of aggressive workouts, they're potentially doing it at the expense of other downstream effects for their lifestyle. So I, I just, I'm pushing people to, to just start implementing a walk after every meal, focus on balancing that meal with, with fiber, fat, protein, and carbohydrate. And those are the big ones. And then the next, the next big lever is sleep. Um, you know, if you can, if you can make simple changes to your sleep routine, pushing for seven, eight hours is, is ideal. Um, and just limiting the, the likelihood that you're disrupting your own sleep. So eating slightly earlier, try to cut off the eating, you know, two hours, maybe three hours before going to sleep. That's huge. Um, I've seen a lot of this. I I'm looking forward to, to digging deeper on the direct correlations between this, because we do have meal logs and we do have sleep data and levels, and we will be looking in into this deeply, but you know, it seems to be that while you're sleeping, if your body's having to allocate energy to digestion and allocation of the, you know, the, the energy molecules that, that come from digestion, um, you're, you're going to have, you know, basically you're going to have heat production and you're going to have energy allocation that, that you otherwise wouldn't need. And your body could drop into a more restful state. It's something like that. Like digestive processes require energy. That energy has to come from somewhere. Your body's focusing on things besides rest and repair. And so just trying to push that, that eating earlier, eliminating alcohol later in the day is, is another big one, like get that restful sleep. And then, you know, longer term, your body can start to recover and adapt and reduce the, the stress environment, which ultimately is, is where metabolism like starts to go awry. Uh, when, when things are kind of going off the rails in terms of cortisol, stress and poor recovery for weeks and months on end, um, it seems to have a dramatic effect on the insulin resistance of the individual. Man, I can speak to the the sleep portion. Like I've, do you use Aura or Whoop or anything like that? Yeah, I use Whoop. So eating before bed, I'm sure you've noticed, like my resting heart rate will be 20, sometimes beats higher than normal. Alcohol yeah. obviously does it too. Have you noticed with yourself, being that you can track those two things, um, glucose, just going through your normal life the next day after a poor night of sleep, can you actually see different responses to foods? Totally. What I have, what I have yet to be able to really nail down is the multi-day effects. So it seems to me that like, I will have the, the most obvious impacts are when I just don't sleep. So a red eye flight, I, I did one of these it's been a little while actually due to COVID, but I did a red eye flight last year and my blood sugar was 25%. Like my baseline was 25% elevated the next day. I was just in a heightened state of, of stress for sure. I, I hadn't slept at all on the plane. I was, I had an active day prior and that seemed to sustain for multiple days into the future. And, um, you know, I haven't had like one of those really crazy kind of disruptions more recently, but that's where we need to, to tease things out is like, is this, I believe that it's as with anything, it's a spectrum. And so like poor sleep over time is going to replicate this effect uh, for people. But certainly like when you're compromised, let's say, you know, you, you have a baby, a, a newborn and, and you're just like, you're not sleeping like that will show up in this sort of elevated stress environment and elevated blood sugar on a CGM. But it's one of those things where like oftentimes when we're, when we are stressed, when we're sleep deprived, we like to try and comfort ourselves by indulging in food, you know, having pizza for dinner, like having some ice cream, just cause I'm, I'm tired. I'm crabby. I'm just going to do this. And I think the, the interesting thing is when you're aware of this objective data, it helps you to basically sort of compensate. Um, so there are, you know, there's the four main levers. You've got nutrition, exercise, sleep, and stress. If you're compromised on one of those and you're aware of it, you can help make up for it on the others. And so that's what I'm always aware of is if I, if I sleep poorly, just like with whoop, it, you know, tells you to kind of back off on the strain. I do the same thing with my, with my other lifestyle factors. Like I'm not gonna, I'm going to be a little bit more cautious about indulging about having like very carbohydrate intense meals, because, um, I want to try and limit the insulin exposure that I'm, that I'm, you know, confronting and, and compensate for the, the poor sleep. It's, it's very similar. It, this is all context. All of these things overlap and have implications for each other. So, it, you know, I think 
despite the fact that we don't have real hard quantifiable evidence of like, you know, one hour of sleep equals 20% worse insulin resistance, we're, that is going to be individual and it's going to be variable, but we will be able to show the, the correlations and people are picking up on this in their own data. Um, I'm looking forward to being more prescriptive and helping people know exactly why they're experiencing, you know, a certain change. I think one of everyone that I've talked to that's worn a CGM has said something similar to me, which is I'll never be the same in terms of just modifying behavior. Have you noticed that with the people, the feedback that you get from people who have used levels saying like, I'm just naturally making better decisions now once I've seen what's actually happening inside my body? Absolutely. You know, I think one of the most impressive things to me is how quickly people have, how quickly we've gone from an idea to something that people are providing feedback has changed their life completely. You know, I, I got a long message uh, just yesterday from someone who, um, who lost 20 pounds and changed their blood panels across all of the major risk factors for cardiovascular disease uh, over the course of three months using levels. And, you know, we, we don't, our goal is not to, to try and make claims that, that you'll like reverse heart disease or lose major weight. Our goal is to generate metabolic awareness. It's for you to know the reactions that your body's experiencing to the actions you're taking, because that information we believe is the fundamental requirement to make lasting behavior change. People have to know, they have to know the, the rules of the game they're playing and they have to know the implications. You know, it's, it's really important that we, that we set the playing field for people and they, they, you know, they can understand, they can see all the information that's relevant. And once that happens, the rest is, is easy. You know, the behavior change, oh, that's, if I know that, that this is directly impacting my risk of, of CBD, like, I, I, that's easy. I'm just going to modify that portion. I'm going to remove that macronutrient. And this is what people are doing. And it's amazing how early these sorts of anecdotes are coming in that, that people are um, able to use this tool and able to, to develop lasting change in their lives that are still early, of course, in the, in the process, but uh, we're, we're hearing some really impressive things from people. And um, I'm just excited for the direction the product is moving because I, I think we're, we're still just scratching the surface. Sorry, man. I don't know if you saw my camera just dropped out on me. I just got kicked out of the interview. Oh, uh, really? Can you, I'm glad you can hear me you're now. You're back now. I can see Okay, you. cool. Um, man, I, uh, I'm just extremely interested in what you guys are doing. And I think I like, I heard you mention how, because wearables kind of get this weird, you know, there's so much data and sometimes people don't know what to do with it. So wearables can get this bad rap. But I heard you mention something like people are not dying from looking at data or getting overwhelmed by data. People are dying from over excess of food, over excess of maybe processed carbohydrates, just not main, being metabolically healthy. And so I think what you guys are doing is is incredible. And uh, I'm just curious to keep watching. I know we're kind of like rounding out on one hour here, but I uh, one thing I didn't get to ask you earlier that I wanted to ask you was, did you... Like, did you always know that you wanted to be a founder and to like start something on your own, like even when you were a kid or once you were at SpaceX or did this sort of come up after having some time, you know, in the trenches working at Hyperloop and SpaceX and all that? That's a good question. I mean, I, I was kind of, I think, predisposed to entrepreneurship early. When I was in high school, I, I had a contracting license and I... I kind of had a little mini business. I was advertising on Craigslist and doing like kitchen remodels and flooring installation and stuff like that. And, and so I had that, I certainly was not, you know, an organized business owner at that age. I was just making money, but I, I definitely had that independence mentality where I, I wanted to kind of be, I wanted to know that I had the most possible control over the direction of my efforts. And I think that's what it comes down to is just this levels is much bigger than, than just me today, but it started from something that I wanted and I wanted to work on it because I thought it should exist. And that made it really easy to work on. You know, it, it made it very exciting and any incremental step towards progress was something that was like kind of selfishly rewarding too. And, and so having that, I, I think that, 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 that's sort of thread is present in my life from the very beginning of just wanting to be to some extent in control of, of where I spend my time and, and why. And so the why it, for levels is 
you know, is my own experience. It's, it's um, being able to replicate what happened in my life, learning more about my body and over the course of three months than I had in my entire life combined. And, and then being able to actually make improvement. You know, that was something I wanted to share with, with a lot of people and the whole team now today is, is of the, of, is of like mind, you know, they want to be working on something that is meaningful, that's mission driven and, um, and, and to be developing a tool that they themselves would use and want their families to use. So, um, I think it's, it's a piece of both. Like, it's not just about, for me, it's not just about being a founder. It's about working on something that is meaningful. And I felt that at SpaceX, I feel that today. And, uh, you know, I hope to continue to, to be able to build a business that people feel called to, to work on as opposed to, um, you know, that's just, just working on something as a founder. That's, that's, I think, secondary. Last question. Do you, I'm, you guys, maybe it was strategic how you named your company levels. It's not specific to glucose. I'm assuming down the road, maybe you want to measure other things Two two parts. Is there anything exciting to, two part question? Is there anything exciting that you think would be cool to measure in real time slash have you thought about, or do you think it's possible to measure something like HSCRP in real time? So we're spending a lot of time thinking, you know, it's not just about if it's when and what, uh, we will measure. So there is no panacea in, in biomolecules, you know, all of these things, you know, we're a chemistry set. There are a lot of chemicals. These chemicals interact with each other and produce chemical reactions. And, and so um, we're aware of that. And, and we actually want to get ahead of the fact that glucose is not going to make you healthier. Just tracking your glucose is not going to make you healthier. It's how you adjust your behaviors and the implications on molecules besides glucose that will improve your glucose responses and potentially other, other factors. Um, we want to measure the highest leverage, most actionable molecules in your body. And those are likely to be hormones in the long term um, and probably lipids. So the, the, big, the big molecules of interest um, certainly include potentially inflammatory molecules like HSCRP, there's a really bright future for real-time biosensing. Um, there's some technologies that have been developed in the lab, in, in academic in institutions that can basically measure anything you want. Um, they haven't been commercialized yet, but they use a, br a brilliant technology that does not depend on enzymes and the reactivity of the molecule, but is more like um, they use specific DNA strands that identify or that like have a, a specificity to bind to the molecule of interest and you can develop them for almost any molecule. Uh, Stanford's doing some amazing work on this. UCSB is doing some amazing work on this. And, and so I, I'm really interested to, to follow these trends and to leverage them in the best way possible to be able to measure the molecules that are most likely to help people improve their health. Uh, we don't want to just, one thing levels will not do is get into measurement for the sake of measurement. Um, you know, there, there has to be an actionability component that is directly tied and evidence-based to health and, and, and illness. And that's where we will get involved and we will design um, an implementation of that molecule that, that is insightful and I think elegant to use. And, and that's when we would roll it out. So we'll keep it limited and minimal, but, but high gain. Super exciting, man. I'm rooting for you a ton. And that wraps up our discussion. Something I clearly don't know how to do in the interview, uh, formally end the interview. I just sort of transition into, I don't know what I transition into, but it works for me. So I hope you enjoyed the interview and I hope that everyone gets an opportunity to experience using a CGM, using level software specifically in the future. Even if it's something that you do for a two week stint, I think you can learn a ton about your physiology and a ton about how your body responds to certain foods and more so just what behaviors do. I think we talked in this episode about things that pretty much anyone can do to drastically improve uh, their blood sugar control and, and how, how your body utilizes or clears sugar from your bloodstream. Um, but it's just different when you see it. I think elevated blood sugar, you can walk around with crazy high blood sugar and not necessarily feel any ramifications. But when you see this number, um, I think it, it'll make you adjust your behavior naturally. And so check out Levels Health. I'll put the link to their website in the show notes. And I think it's pretty obvious given the size of my podcast currently, but I'm not getting paid for any of this. I uh, just, if there's something useful, 
that has great utility, I feel like it's a good thing to share with the world. So it'll be in the description, but have a great week, everyone. Stay strong, make the tough choices that are the right ones. And no matter where you are in your life cycle of, I don't know, self-improvement or whatever you want to call it, uh, whether you feel like you're super far off from where you want to be or you're close, just understand that it is possible to build discipline. It's possible to build willpower. It's possible to focus better. It's possible to be mentally tougher. It just takes one step at a time. Make one small change and then make another and then make another. And then next time you slip or don't perform the way you wanted to or have a bad weekend that you feel like sets you back, don't let that turn into a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday slip up, but come right back Monday strong and begin to build that internal discipline that will pay dividends in the future. Uh, Jordan Shallow, somebody who I'm a big fan of, says the little things don't add up, they multiply. I'm a big fan of that one. So little things multiply. Have a strong week, get after it, and I'll see you on the next one.